Hi, welcome to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm Kevin Hopkins, author of Revelation, Authentic Power in an Overwhelming Universe, and I'm your host for the podcast. Today we turn our attention to Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Now in verse 11, uh, John heard a voice behind him that said, write on a scroll uh, what you see and send those things to the seven churches at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now in verse 12, he says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Let's pause there for just a moment, because this is a device that the Apostle John uses constantly. In his gospel, there's this confusion, this element of confusion. Jesus says to the woman at the well, if you knew who was asking, I would offer you a drink and you would never thirst again. And and she doesn't understand. She's like, yeah, give me that living water. But he's not talking about water, right? Um, so again and again in the Gospel of John, you see this, this element of the person doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. And in explaining their confusion, he explains to you and I what Jesus is trying to accomplish. Well, here in the book of Revelation, it's a little bit different element. It's this element of expecting one thing and getting another. I've often called it the prophetic bait and switch. It's a little bit different than that, but it says something's going to happen or there's an expectation that you have that, that there's been a series of things that have been consistent and the last one is different and, and what you expect doesn't come to pass and that leads you to the next revelation, the next understanding, the next lesson. And that's the way this works. He hears a voice, he turns around to see the loud voice and instead of seeing a voice, he sees lampstands. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands, I saw one who looked like a human being. Uh, the, the traditional translation says, looked like a son of man, which is a term from Daniel. Um, but in order to, to stop some of the symbolic confusion from Daniel, I just translated this, looked like a human being dressed in a robe that reached down to his feet, wearing a golden sash encircling his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazes of fire. His feet were like molten bronze glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of cascading waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars and projecting from his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Then he laid his right hand on me and said, Stop being afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write down everything you will see, that is, the events that are happening now and those which will take place later. 
as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's a very interesting beginning to the vision. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He heard the voice that said, write these things down and send them to these seven churches. He turns around to see who's speaking and he sees a person standing amongst seven golden lampstands. And the one standing amongst the lampstands is dressed in a robe that reaches down to his feet, a golden sash around his chest that signifies royalty. The hair on his head is white like wool or white as snow, a symbol of wisdom and age. And his eyes are like a blaze of fire. His eyes are on fire. They're still, though he's aged, there's still light in his eyes, not just light, but purpose and mission and drive. There's fire there, refining fire. In fact, that fire is so bright that his feet glow like bronze in the furnace. And and his voice is like the sound of, of falling waters, of cascading waters. It's quite a description, isn't it? Who is it that he sees? Well, it doesn't take much imagination to understand he sees Jesus. This is Christ that he sees. He He's aged since John last saw him. The last time John saw Jesus, he was 33 or so. John was probably... 15 years younger than that, 17, 18 maybe. Um, and, And his rabbi passed from this earth, appeared to them by the sea where they fished and they, they ate fish and then ascended into heaven. John hasn't seen him since, but John knows that when he sees his own reflection, he's gotten old, his hair is white, his beard is white. He, he doesn't have the, the body that he once had, the physical ability, but the fire within him is still burning just as brightly. And he sees Jesus in those same kinds of terms, but dressed in the finery of a royal person, of a king. And all the symbolisms have meaning. The gold sash is royalty. The, the, the hair as white as snow or wool is wisdom. The eyes blazing like fire. Are, are from the prophet who said, the word of God is like fire in my bones and I'm tired of holding it in, prophet Jeremiah. So <clears throat> there's a message to each of these things. His feet are bronze. They're glowing like metal that's just come out of the furnace. Not quite molten, but but still white hot. Uh, there's, a, there's a passage of scripture that says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of them who bring good news. Israel existed uh, in, in, a, in a valley, really. It's cut by a valley from north to south. And if you're in the central valley of Jerusalem, uh, of Israel, uh, in, that, in that rift valley, uh, you're a sitting duck for anybody who attacks from east or west because they're going to have the high ground and you're going to be stuck in the low ground. It's a corridor, that valley. Um, the, the attackers always came from the north because they could come right down the valley to Jerusalem. 
and and run the full length of Israel and and attack the entire country from from one approach. <clears throat> it's just really, uh, it's just really not the best defensible ground in the world. And so, if you're in the Beka Valley, and an and an enemy attacks, they're coming over the mountains. And so, there are scriptures throughout the Bible that say things like, "I look to the mountains from where my help would come from. Uh, who will help me?" And and if help's going to come, it's also got to come over those mountains, like the like the cavalry riding in to save us. And so if a messenger is sent ahead to say, hey, we're coming to help, he's going to come down those mountains running. How lovely are the feet of him who brings good news. Help is coming. God is on his way. And, and that's the kind of message that comes from those feet running towards you with that good news. Uh, here are the feet of this this vision of Christ glowing like molten metal, white hot, ready to strike, ready to be shaped, ready to to answer the call. Um, they're not cold and and listless and lifeless. They're white hot and ready to bring good news. And it's a great imagery of Christ himself. His voice is like the sound of crashing waters. In the book, I explain uh, my fondness for a place called Snoqualmie Falls in the state of Washington. And it comes down off of Mount Rainier in the Snoqualmie River. And at the town of Snoqualmie, there's this really impressive waterfall. It's not quite Niagara Falls, but to me, it's just about as good. And in the spring, when the glaciers and the snow are melting, you go to Snoqualmie Falls and the roar of the of the great amount of water coming over those falls just shakes the ground. It reverberates through the valley and you can feel it in your chest. It just rumbles. And I imagine every time I'm there that that's what John hears the voice of Christ to be like. His face shines like the sun in all its brilliance and from his mouth extends a double-edged sword the word of god is sharper than any two-edged sword it divides it divides bone from marrow and and truth uh, it 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 cuts through to the most discerning of things um, that's that's the sword that's the word of god that comes from his mouth in his right hand, he holds seven stars. And, and John's going to explain to us the symbolism of those seven stars. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. It doesn't say he died, but he either lost consciousness or he was afraid to move. There's, there's a reference here to the priests in the Old Testament when they encounter the presence of God falling down on the floor and and not wanting to move or being afraid to move that's this kind of response john understands that he's in the presence of one so holy the only appropriate response is to fall down face first on the floor and not move 
but the vision of the man lays his right hand on John and says, don't be afraid, or literally, stop being afraid. It's, it's what God says to those he's about to use. It's what he says to Joseph when the angel comes to him to let him know that Mary's pregnant. It's what he says to Mary when the angel comes to Mary to, to tell her that she's going to bear the Messiah. Don't be afraid. Stop being afraid. But in this instance, there's this, this series of statements that are remarkable. In the Greek language, the words are ego eimi, I am. It's the name of God, Yahweh in the Hebrew. I am like I am. Um, when people come to me for counseling and, and some husband says, I can't change, I just am what I am. I say, nope, that name's already taken. You're going to have to choose a different one. God is the only one who is, always in the present tense. He's not a washed up has been. He's not a will be. He is in any given moment. A million years ago, he was present tense. Today, he's present tense. He's already in the future, in present tense. He's present in every moment of time as if they all happened at once. He's the only one in all of the universe who can say, I am. In Greek, it's it, it's poor manners to write ego a me because you're not. You can't say I am because you're not. You might, uh, you may, it may be that way, but it's not. You, you don't have the authority to say I am anything. And so the Hebrew writers avoided writing I am because it's God's name. The Greek writers in the New Testament, even in Greek society, avoided writing the words ego e me because you're not. You don't have that kind of constancy. So when Jesus says, I am anything, the way, the truth, the life, the good shepherd, I am the way, I am the gate, I am the vine, I am the bread of life. Every time he says something like that, it's like a slap in the face to all the people around him. It, it really is brash. And here he is in the book of Revelation, and he says, stop being afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. Once I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Wow. What's he say he is? He says he's the first and the last. He's the beginning of the story and the end of the story. He started it. He'll finish it. None of the story will be written without his approval, without his oversight. I am the living one. I was dead, but now I am alive forever and ever. I am the living one. I am the one who is always present tense. I am the one who is always alive. I am the one who is always always there for you. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. You have to come to grips with a little bit of a factoid here. Um, the depiction of hell in the New Testament is, is very different from what you and I have typically envisioned hell to be. And we're going to talk about it throughout the book of Revelation. In Hebrew thought, there was no hell. The Hebrews didn't have a hell. 
They just had the grave, uh, Sheol. In the in the Greek mythology, in the Greek mythos, it's this place called Hades. It's the place where the dead go and wait to be judged. And and in Hebrew thought, it, it was it was locked. It was a a place where you went and you couldn't escape from. It was like a jail cell. Now it could have been paradise in there, but you had to wait in that place until the final resurrection and the judgment. And and you were stuck there. You couldn't escape that place. You just had to wait. Jesus says, no, no, I have the keys. <laughs> the person who has the keys controls the place, right? When I taught school, I understood that the most powerful person in the entire school district was the janitor because he had the keys to absolutely everything. If you needed supplies, he had the keys. If you needed a basketball to shoot some hoops, he had the keys. If you needed musical instruments out of the storage room, he had the keys. So the person with the keys is truly the one who controls the place. And Jesus says, death, that place that you thought was a dead end, Hades, that place you thought was a cell into which people went and couldn't get out. Oh no, I have the keys. I am alive forever and I have the keys to death and Hades. So write down everything you're going to see. That is the events that are happening now and those which will take place later. And then he explains the mysteries. As for the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, here's what they are. The seven stars are the seven, the Greek word is angelos, the seven angels. It, it simply means messenger. It does not necessarily mean a heavenly being. In fact, a lot of people, a lot of biblical scholars translate this. The seven stars are the seven pastors of the seven churches. And the lampstands, the seven lampstands, are the seven churches. He holds their messengers in his hand. Now, my pastor friends, I really like that transcription for you and me. If you serve a church today, I want you to know that, that God has you in his hand. There's nothing that you can do that is outside his reach. In fact, you're not just within his reach, you're in his hand. He's holding you and supporting you and keeping you and, and working through you in the lives of people in your church and in this world. What a great visual example of how close God keeps his messengers, those who are doing his work. And the seven lampstands amongst which he stands are the seven churches, each one within his reach. Nothing outside of his vision, nothing outside of his knowledge, nothing outside of his reach. What happens in your church happens within God's reach. Now, it's not always perfect because a church is made up of people and people certainly aren't perfect. But it's not outside God's purview. It's not outside his knowing. It's not outside his reach. If he needs to fix it, he'll fix it. I was in an election one time. I, I was in the congregation and we were voting on the pastor, whether to keep him or send him away. And there was a lot of stink at that time in that church. People wanted that pastor gone. There weren't maybe 200 people who came every week, but on the Sunday it was time to vote for the pastor. Almost 500 people showed up just to vote, most of them to vote against him. And I thought, well, if, 
if there's usually 200 here and 300 more have shown up to vote against him, they may well get him. He may be gone next week. I was kind of worried about it. And I sat down by Sister Boyd, down by the front row. She always sat up closer than anybody else because she couldn't hear very well. And she didn't want to miss a word of the sermon. So I sat on the second row by Sister Boyd. And she said, honey, what's wrong? I said, Sister Boyd, I don't know how to vote in this election. I, I support that guy, but I understand he's done some things that are really pretty foolish. I, I just don't see voting against him. And she put her hand on my leg and she patted me and she said, vote for the preacher, honey. Vote for the preacher. If God doesn't want him, God's got control of a whole lot of ways to get rid of him. And, and I've never forgotten that wisdom. Be the positive person in any circumstance. If God wants it changed, he certainly has the power at his disposal to change it. I remember one time praying for a situation and, and, and praying that God would do whatever it took to set it right. And somebody said, buddy, you better be careful when you pray to the one who controls lightning. And we laughed it off. A couple years later, there was a couple in our church who went through an ugly split and she moved in with a, a, a different guy, and he was just as lost as could be, and and they they wandered off into into just a mess of a lifestyle. And and one Sunday in church, I got up and prayed, and I said, Lord, intervene in in whatever way you have to to keep them from losing their salvation. I, I didn't even know that I believed that prayer. I, that wasn't my theology, really. The next day on Monday, I took a group of teenagers off to, to teen camp. And Tuesday, I got a call from my wife, and she said, uh, people are going to look at you funny when you get back to town. I said, why is that? She said, well, that guy went out to mow the yard this morning, and after about two swaths with the lawnmower, he dropped dead right there in the yard. And, and sure enough, when I got home, people looked at me funny. I, I went to a restaurant where a friend of mine was the was the proprietor. And I walked in and he said, hey, preacher. And he pulled me aside. He said, hey, make me a deal. If ever I do something you think isn't right, please talk to me about it before you pray for me. Uh, it, it was kind of crazy the way people looked at me. I, I don't believe God strikes people dead, but I do understand that God holds that kind of power, that God can make things move the way he needs them to move in order to accomplish his purposes. I understand that the Bible says that that God uses the rulers of this earth, the wicked ones, the righteous ones, all of them, to accomplish his purposes. He's in control. He really is sovereign. My pastor, my messengers, my friends, my life, they're in his hands. My church is in his sight. It's within his reach. I don't have to worry about what happens around me. I don't have to worry even for my own life. I'm not outside God's vision. He sees, he hears, he knows. And if he has to, I'm close enough that he can wrap his hand around me and save me and protect me or, or bring me home. I hope today that you'll take that truth with you. You're within God's sight. You're within God's reach. Your church is in God's hand, or it can be very quickly. God sees what's going on, and He cares. God loves you, 
and he wants what's best for you. And so his word to you today is, don't be afraid. I'm the one who brings life. I'm the one who sees where you are. I'm the one who cares and loves you. And I'm the one who'll bring you home. Go have a great day.